Blog Talk Radio. coming up on the show. Um, Joe Biden released an ad that I think is actually pretty good, and um, it highlights the direction of the campaign that could work. So I'm going to lead with that in just a second. Then we have uh, Joe Biden got slapped in the face by reality when it comes to Bernie Sanders supporters and just how much they like him. That is one of my favorite stories of the day because it... uh, it really, it, it's just a wake-up call for Joe Biden and his team. And I can't believe that they actually ever thought they would get, like, strong support from Bernie's people anyway. But they did. They really thought that. So I'm going to break that down. Then we have a, a really aggressive on-air fight on CNBC that I want to talk about. Uh, we also have Trump. I got a bunch of stuff up involving Trump's tweets, including a few with Twitter. We'll talk about that. Um, There's also instances of him saying stuff where it's like he doesn't know that he's president or he acts like he's not president. He has massive power, and he just – he doesn't use it when he could do some of the things that he's, you know, saying that he wants to do. So we'll talk about that. Um, 
And then later on in the show, we will get to the ultra-wealthy are spitting in your eye yet again. There's a Bloomberg op-ed, not op-ed, actually just a regular article that i gotta, I got to lay out for you. Um, <clears throat> and we have Rush Limbaugh later on defending Trump's tweets, basically accusing Joe Scarborough of being a murderer. <laughs> but the way he chooses to defend him is, uh, is very Rush Limbaugh, very hilarious, and it would absolutely never, ever, ever fly if it was about a Democrat. So, anyway, um, we're going to talk about all that and more. I kid you not, I'm literally trying to comb my hair as I talk to you, lovely people. See, this is what happens when you're late. When you have a show to do and you're a little bit late, you get on air, you realize you're a mess, and then you got to try to comb your hair while on air. It's really, it's really something. All right, anyway, I digress. Let's get started, um, and we're going to do that with Joe Biden's ad. So Joe Biden released an ad that I think is pretty good. I think it's pretty devastating. Um, I haven't given him much credit over the election cycle so far, but, you know, I think this highlights a direction that could work because it's a little too much to deny. It's hard to deny. So let's take a look and then we'll discuss. I mean, that could be effective. That ad could be effective for sure. For everybody who's just listening and you didn't uh, see what's on screen, you have uh, the COVID-19 death counter rising drastically as it shows President Trump golfing. And, you know, hypocrisy seems to not impact Trump. It's like water off a duck's ass. But he, there are countless examples of him, like, calling into Fox and Friends and old videos and tweets and everything where he attacks Obama for golfing, even going as far as to say when there were, like, two Ebola cases in the country. Like, oh, how dare he? He went golfing. We have a pandemic. And uh, just so everybody understands, Ebola is a lot more difficult to spread than, uh, than COVID-19. Ebola, I think you have to come into contact with the bodily fluids of somebody um, who has Ebola. Meanwhile, it's, it's a lot different for COVID. You just need, like, the tiny droplets and particles to somehow, um, you know, get into your body. So it, it, it's different. It's harder to contract Ebola. But there were two cases here, and Trump was, like, yelling at Obama, saying, how dare you? you, you know, you shouldn't be golfing. There's other clips of him in rallies saying, if I'm president, I'm never going to be golfing. Because, you know, you got, stuff, you got problems you got to handle. And so Trump went golfing, and then afterwards he was like, I hadn't done it in like three months. Yeah, but listen, and this is coming from a golfer. If you're president, I mean, man, maybe you can golf like once every couple months, assuming there's not like a a national crisis, 
And when you're in a national crisis like right now, don't do it. Don't do it. It it is true that he happened to golf like right as we're crossing that 100,000 death threshold for the pandemic. And that really does show this kind of like nonchalant uh, approach to it and attitude to it. Almost like, well, this is going to happen, so what am I supposed to do here? And it's like, when you're the president, that's really not a message you should send. That's really not something you should do. And it does come across as incredibly self-centered at a time when we need somebody who's a steady hand leading the country. And, um, you know, the problem is, and we've alluded to this previously, Trump has an issue here. He doesn't come across well in a crisis. Like, I get that the whole I'm a populist, I'm a bomb thrower thing works when we're not in a national emergency. But when we're in a national emergency, the the prevailing sentiment in the country is not necessarily to throw a brick through the window of the establishment. The prevailing sentiment in the country is we need like a calm, smart, you know, daddy figure to soothe the country and let us know, I got this on lock, I got it under control, I'm going to handle it. And people want that steady hand of leadership. And Trump, no matter how hard he tries, he can't come across as that steady hand of leadership. He comes across as the bomb thrower. So the political moment is like uniquely crafted to be bad for him. It really is. And what Biden is doing, what his team is doing with this ad, is really hammering home the idea that, yeah, of course this guy can't lead in a crisis. What, are you kidding me? And I think that lands. I think that works. I think that that's probably uh, the best Biden ad yet, and it has a lot to do with the simplicity of the message. And uh, it is kind of like you watch it, and it is kind of undeniable. You watch it, and you're like, I mean, well, there are 100,000 people dead because of COVID, and uh, he did just decide to go golfing. That is kind of, like, not good. And I'm usually one, like, I don't care usually when the presidents go golfing. Like, I, you know, I always said under Obama, and I said early on under Trump when he was caught golfing, that um, because the weird thing people do is they like to add up the amount of money and tax dollars that it costs for the president's respective protection when they're on the golf course. And it's, you know, tens of millions of dollars or I'm sure after all the times Obama golfed and even at this point all the times Trump has golfed, it it adds up to like a couple hundred million dollars or something like that in in protection costs. And it's like doing the whole like nickel and dime approach. It's like there's a zillion other things we can focus on that's a hell of a lot more money. So to focus on how much tax money that costs, I mean, no, let's talk about the military budget. Let's talk about corporate subsidies and Wall Street bailouts and things of that nature. So that always, like, kind of frustrated me that people focus on it in that way. But, like, I get it in the middle of a crisis when 100,000 people are dead and you're out there, like, in a nonchalant way golfing. And it just comes across as, like, oh, you're not – the gravity of the situation is not really weighing on your conscience. And that's what Team Biden is highlighting, that Trump can't lead in a crisis and he's not ready for this. So – some people might watch this and say, okay, but what the hell do you want Trump to be doing? Like, you know, where he was doing those daily press conferences for a while and, and all this stuff. So what do, you, what do you want? Well, I mean, listen, the answer is simple. You're the president. You should probably be doing everything you can to stockpile remdesivir, for example. 
Um, you should be working hard to change our supply lines and, and move manufacturing to the U.S. You should be stockpiling ventilators, perhaps for the next crisis, because now we learned, wow, this is not good to, uh, to be caught behind the eight ball when a pandemic hits. You should be using executive orders and emergency powers to help working Americans who can't pay the bills. I mean, they should have done a UBI. They should have done a rent and mortgage freeze. There's a million things that could have been done on top of what we already did. And what they did is they focused all their attention and all their energy on propping up the stock market and bailing out Wall Street and bailing out corporations. And everybody else is getting screwed. And, like, you didn't do anything for your average American, and then you left. So that's, you know, you look like a fraud because that's the action. Those are the actions of a fraud. And that's, I'm not letting Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer off the hook. They're just as bad. But it really is something that uh, we're going to have an eviction crisis and a foreclosure crisis as soon as the pandemic is over because people can't pay the bills. And these guys are all willy-nilly about it. Hey, we bailed out. We propped up the stock market. And we bailed out the corporations. What more do you want from us? What I want from you is UBI. What I want from you is Medicare for all. What I want from you is a rent freeze and a mortgage freeze. So it's the idea that he did enough or that he led in a strong way or whatever, utter nonsense, complete and utter nonsense. None of them led. None of the Republicans led. Trump didn't lead. Nancy Pelosi didn't lead. Chuck Schumer didn't lead. They propped up their donor base by letting them loot the Treasury. They turned, turned a blind eye as the Fed pumped a trillion dollars a day of liquidity into the marketplace. And working people, regular people got screwed. And then Trump went golfing as 100,000 people died. That's really not okay. <laughs> That's really not okay. So I think this is a, a good ad. And I said it before and I'll say it again. My advice for the Biden team is if Biden wants to win, hide. I don't care that people will crow and people will moan. and People will say, where's Biden? Where's Biden? Where's Biden? Bernie people will say that. Trump people will say that. If Biden wants to win, that's what I'd do. Because uh, tr the more people have seen Trump in this crisis, the more they don't like it. Because he doesn't have that ability to notch it down a couple of years and stop, like, accusing MSNBC hosts of murder on Twitter as there's a pandemic ripping through the country. So he doesn't have that in him. He doesn't have that, like, calming paternal leader instinct in him. So, okay, give him enough rope. Let him hang himself. You go watch reruns of I Love Lucy, eat some popcorn and some ice cream. You're all set. It worked in the primary. It could work in the general. That's what I would do. But definitely stop giving people more ammo to come after you like they did with the the Breakfast Club interview, where Biden, of course, shoved his foot in his mouth a thousand times because he can't talk because he's in cognitive decline. And um, he told black people, you ain't black if you don't want to vote for him. <laughs> I, I mean, all this stuff is so obvious. Just hide him and you're going to probably be OK and you could win. Um, I'd rather take my chances on letting Trump hang himself than Biden doing a good job the rest of the time. But anyway, I think this is a solid ad. This is probably his best ad yet and we'll see what kind of an impact it has moving forward. Okay, next. All right, so this story is hilarious to me. Joe Biden and his team 
got slapped in the face by the reality of Bernie Sanders supporters. So the Wall Street Journal says, Joe Biden finds Bernie Sanders donors elusive. You don't say. A large pool of untapped donors means possible new sources of cash, but indicates Biden hasn't generated enthusiasm with this group. Okay, my response to this up front is, duh. <laughs> like, how did you not know? How did you think for even a split second? Like, oh, I, I got it. So when Bernie drops out and Bernie endorses Biden, all of Bernie's grassroots army will be jovial and happy and say, yay, now we'll support Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. I can't wait to give him my hard-earned money. I can't wait. Obviously, that was not going to happen. So I happen to know this because I, um, you know, I was a recurring donor to Bernie, and I started getting the text messages maybe two weeks after um, Bernie dropped out and endorsed Biden. And the text messages were hilarious. They were something along the lines of like, you know, hey, hey, you were a recurring donor to Bernie. Well, now Joe Biden needs your help. Can we count on you for a recurring donation to help beat Trump? And I was like, ah, that's a good one. <laughs> so they actually give specific numbers in the article. This is hilarious. So a grand total of 60,000 people donated to Biden from Bernie's small donor army. Just so everybody understands, that's a grand total of 3% of Bernie's small donor army. 3%? (laughs) Hillary may have done better than that. Oh, Oh, I love that. I love that so much. See, what you guys didn't understand is Bernie supporters, by and large, these are people who look at the system, think it's totally broken, think it's rotten, think it's corrupt, think it's useless, think the deck is stacked against them, and they found somebody in Bernie who is championing very clear-cut, to-the-point policy solutions that would help improve their lives and help fix the country. So the support for Bernie was never about Bernie, ever. It was about Medicare for all. It was about free college. It was about a living wage. It was about ending the wars. It was about a Green New Deal. It was about legalizing marijuana on day one through, executive order, through an executive order and freeing all the nonviolent drug offenders. I can go on and on. The support for Bernie Sanders was as policy-based as you could ever get. Were there the odd supporter here and there that it wasn't about that with Bernie? I'm sure. I'm sure. Just like anybody else, there were some people that were part of the movement that may have been, you know, had other motivations or, or maybe even were nefarious and did, said and did things on social media that are objectionable. But by and large, Bernie's movement was all about those policies and, and turning the United States into a thriving social democracy, it really is people looking for a continuation of like FDR's legacy and these big, bold attempts to change the system, these big, bold attempts to not do a half measure on a half measure, which has been like exactly what the Democratic Party has been about for decades now. 
So when you said, oh, become a donor to Joe Biden, we see Joe Biden as part of the problem. We see Joe Biden as what led to Donald Trump winning. There's no doubt that the neoliberal corporate world order led to a fake populist on the right, Donald Trump, getting elected. So to say, hey, help prop up the same neoliberal corporatism that brought us Donald Trump, 97% of Bernie small donors go, that's a good one. Never, never, ever, ever. Now, let me be clear about something. 97% of small dollar donors are all 97% not going to vote for Joe Biden? No. My guess is probably the majority, maybe even the overwhelming majority of that 97% is going to go, you know, I can't let Donald Trump pick the next Supreme Court appointment. I can't, um, I can't do nothing on climate change for another four years. Um, and they might have a, a small list of issues where they're like, I just can't leave it to Donald Trump, so I'll vote for Joe Biden. But don't get it twisted, son. Whoever of those, that 97% that didn't donate, that were in Bernie's small dollar army, whoever does it and votes for Biden is going to be holding their nose as they do it. That's what's going to happen. And the idea of contributing their hard-earned money to Joe Biden At a time like this, when we have an economic depression, you have to be out of your damn mind. But I think the best part of this story is, guys, Biden's staff really thought that, like, Bernie small dollar donors were going to be like, yes, let's go to Joe now. I can't wait. Can't wait to get absolutely nothing. Can't wait to be gaslit into oblivion and have Joe propose compromises on the compromises and then have the right wing slap down absolutely everything and get Dickie McGee's acts except right wing reform. Can't wait for that. Like, how delusional and how out of touch does one have to be to think that Bernie's small dollar army would, like, rush to Biden and, and support Biden? See, what they're getting slapped in the face with is the reality that Trump's really bad is not a good enough argument for a lot of people across this country. Now, they might luck out in the general election in that, you know, the older voters who made Biden's coalition in the primary could win for Biden in the general. Absolutely. Biden's definitely in this race. But the idea that the small dollar donor army, which, by the way, is, I would guess, largely comprised of young people, the idea that they're going to put in the same kind of effort, same kind of attention, same kind of monetary support for Biden as they did for Bernie... You have to be out of your damn mind to think for even a second that that would happen. Like, I'm, I'm insulted that they even thought that they could get, like, a majority of Bernie's small-dollar army to support Biden. I'm insulted by that. Like, you really have that little of a clue as to what Bernie's movement was about? Really have that little of a clue? I, I'm, I'm floored by that. I'm floored by that, because virtually everybody who I talk to in my life, who I know, no matter what their political ideology is, they get it about Bernie supporters. They get it that it's anti-establishment, outsider types who think the system is broken and corrupt, and they found one person who they thought was a good enough politician to represent their own values and their policy preferences. People get it, but the people in Biden's campaign and Biden himself were like, wait, I don't get it. They were all supposed to come over to us now. 
And by the way, I have in my life, I haven't spoken to a single Bernie supporter who's not disappointed in Bernie's actions post-dropping out. Now, I get it. I'm not, like, I'm not expecting Bernie to be me. I'm not expecting Bernie to have the same calculations that I have and approach Biden the same way that I do. That's clear. He, already, he always said, hey, if it's somebody else, I'll, I'll endorse him because we've got to defeat Donald Trump, so on and so forth. It's the way in which he's doing it. It's the way in which he's you know, calling his own uh, voters who don't want to fall in line irresponsible and the way that he's dressing up a, a pile of crap and pretending it's a fudge brownie to serve to you. It's, and I think that he really likes Joe Biden in a way that he didn't like Hillary Clinton. So he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't feel as bad and doesn't feel like it's wrong to push for Biden over Trump. He actually is, is comfortable with that in a way that so many of his supporters and so many of his old staffers are like, nah, dog, this ain't it. So, you know, hey, what a surprise. The guy who supported NAFTA, who pushed for TPP, who supported the Iraq war, who supported the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which was the repeal of Glass-Steagall, that's Wall Street deregulation, which led to the crash in 2008. That guy, the guy who early on in his career happily worked with segregationists, that guy. Turns out Bernie supporters are not all in for a guy who has repeatedly pushed a right-wing agenda throughout his entire career. A guy who bragged about writing the crime bill and being tough on crime. A guy who still says to this day, yeah, I'll veto Medicare for all. He says it repeatedly. He says it like every single week. Surprisingly, only 3% of Bernie's donors are like, yeah, okay, I'll donate to this guy. Least surprising fact in history, but I'm floored that they actually are surprised by it to the point where they made a Wall Street Journal article out of it. And by the way, I think this is groundwork for if Biden loses, immediately blame Bernie people. I I told you guys this is going to happen. If Joe Biden wins, Bernie Sanders will get no credit. Bernie Sanders supporters will get no credit. If Joe Biden loses, Bernie Sanders and his supporters will get all the blame. You're in an abusive relationship. That's what this is. So I just want everybody to understand that because I'm telling you up front. And so when you see an article like this, they're laying the groundwork just in case Biden loses to turn around and go, well, it was the fucking Bernie supporters. And what they'll say is, oh, my God, see, the problem was Bernie was too aggressive against Joe Biden. And Bernie used arguments against Joe Biden that Trump then used against Joe Biden. So the real problem is that our primary was too tough and our primary was too divisive. Next time we just have to hold hands and sing kumbaya and not criticize each other for being corrupt war criminals. Abusive relationship. Abusive relationship. This is kind of a, this point kind of has nothing to do with this story, but I just want to bring it up because I saw it yesterday on Twitter. Apparently Chris Hedges is running for Congress as a Green Party member. I, you have no idea how much I hope he wins that race. I want to be proven wrong about the idea of a third party being impossible. I want to be proven wrong because I would have some hope if, the, if Chris Hedges wins a congressional seat as a Green Party member. That would give me hope because I go, oh, okay, so maybe the whole idea of a third party thing is not impossible because I feel like it's impossible right now. I'm not going to lie to you guys. We have a two-party system. We don't like it, but that's the nature of the beast. It's rigged against third parties. If Chris Hedges can somehow pull it off, that'll make me incredibly happy. But I doubt he's going to be able to. I just don't, just don't get embarrassed, Chris. Don't get like 5% or less. That would drive me crazy. Show me that there's hope through that kind of a method, and then maybe I'll be able to change my tune on this. Because my unfortunate current analysis of the situation 
is that any kind of change that we're ever going to get is going to come through the Democratic Party, but it's going to come from leftists taking over the Democratic Party. And I understand that that's hard. I understand that there's always setbacks. I understand that we just had a major setback because Bernie's a cuck and didn't fight hard enough to beat Biden and had a terrible strategy post-Super Tuesday. I understand all that, but I still think that the only way that we actually win is by taking over one of the two major parties. That's it, because that's the way our system functions. I think it's gross. I don't want to be a Democrat. I'm really an independent who caucuses with the left, but, you know, I just think it's rigged against independents and greens. But Chris Hedges, prove me wrong and make me change my tune on third-party politics. I would love to be proven wrong. Maybe all it takes is somebody who's famous, who can run on one of those third-party banners and who can do well. I mean, Ross Perot, he set a record running as an independent in the 90s. He got like 9% of the vote. He didn't win any states, but he won like 9% of the vote in a presidential election. Um, it helped that he was a billionaire. I mean, but, you know, I don't know if we could do better than that in any third-party or independent scenario. I hope we can. But anyway, I'm just rambling now. Bottom line is, I'm not surprised at all that 97% of Bernie small-dollar donors basically told Biden to piss off. Um, what I am stunned by is that they expected anything different. They really expected everybody to love Biden and fall in line. It's comical. It really is. Okay. Now we're going to talk about CNBC and the fight that they had. Two CNBC anchors, Andrew Ross Sorkin and Joe Kiernan, they really lost it on each other, arguing about the market, COVID-19, and uh, a bunch of stuff. You could tell that they really dislike each other. So this is an interesting clip. Let's watch, and then we'll discuss. And for a while, it was, how can stocks be where they are because of oil prices? Remember, that was your take. That's right. How can it be yeah. uh, based on um, where interest rates are right now? Then it could be how can stocks be, and then it was every single discussion you have over the weekend is about how can stock prices be here when the economy is here. Now it's going to be your earnings, but can you see how that probably isn't the question? We're going to have David Lebovitz on. He's going to say every client he talks to is asking him how can the stock market be here when everything else is And that's the question. And there are a lot of smart people who have that view. You may are not they? Why is that the smart people? They've been, they've been wrong for 35%. Why are they smart? Just because they can see what's right in front of their nose? That doesn't make them smart. It makes them you missed not savvy about the market. You, you missed it. You missed Joe. You, you missed it 100% on the way down, and you missed 100,000 deaths. So we can have this debate back and forth, and you can try to, 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 to question the questions I'm asking. But there are smart people, people including when your friend went Dan Druckenmiller, who was energy the market is said it was Hold gonna, on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm not going to do this with you, Joe. Every morning, every morning you try to question the questions I'm asking. These are, these are questions that investors are asking every single morning. I am just trying to get through some of this clutter. 
I may be right, I may be wrong, investors may be right, they may be wrong, that's what makes the market. But it doesn't make people a good person or a bad person. It doesn't make it doesn't make it right to, to, to oh. act the way you are. I'm sorry. Okay. You yelled I'm at not the, the guy, guy, the guy not. yesterday with masks was like, why are you yelling at I'm me not, now? Joe. You just yelled again. I don't know. I'm just trying to go ahead. I'm, just, I'm sorry? No, you're not. No, you're not, Joe. I'm sorry. Okay. Go um, ahead with the news. You, you panicked about the market, panicked about COVID, panicked about the ventilators, panicked about the PPE, panicked about ever going out again, panicked and you did, ever get back to normal. Just, if you didn't panic what good is that? What good is it? Why not keep their heads, Joe? And all you did was try to help your friend, the president. That's what you did every single morning on this show. Every single morning on this show, you use and abuse your position, Joe. Totally unfair. You use and abuse your position. I'm trying to help investors keep their cool, keep their head, and as it turned out, that's what they should have done. That's what they should have done. They should have kept their heads. If they had listened to you, Andrew, we're supposed to be at about eight thousand. I was arguing to go sell your stocks, Joseph. I was arguing about people's lives. We understand people's lives. Wow, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, so um, there's a lot to break down there, but the, the older guy there, Joe Kiernan, um, he was basically saying, like, look at you, young guy, don't know anything. You flipped out about COVID. You flipped out about the market crash. Well, that was totally useless. Because it looks like everything's fine. That's basically what he's getting out there. And um, that guy's a moron. <laughs> the reason why the market's okay is that the Fed is propping it up with a trillion dollars of liquidity per day, you absolute moron. So the reason why the market is okay is because, in essence, it's been fully socialized. Fully socialized. And the Fed chair said in no uncertain terms, the amount of support that we'll give to the market to prop it up is unlimited. We have the unlimited ability to prop it up. Move a, a couple decimal points on the computer screen. We're good money, dog. So, it, you know, for investors, you don't have to worry about anything. We're going to look after you. We're not going to let you fail under any circumstance. So they're taking an approach to the stock market, which is, right in line with modern monetary theory, which is the idea that, hey, we have our own sovereign currency, so we can do whatever the hell we want with it. If we want to print more money, we'll print more money. And uh, we'll be fine because we owe that money to ourselves. So, Joe, the reason why the market's okay is because we fully implemented corporate socialism and we're spending a trillion dollars a day to prop up the stock market. That's why the stock market's okay. So, in other words, the stock market isn't really okay. It was saved. <laughs> It's not actually okay. Um, and then he was talking about COVID as if, like, you know, as if, like, it's fine now or whatever. And Andrew Ross Sorkin, who I'm sure I hate in a million other issues, but he was like, there's 100,000 people dead, you absolute lunatic. But this is what they do. Like, we've seen this from Trump. We've seen this from Republicans. There's, like, a, an end zone spiking going on right now. And they're reopening everything. And it's like, are, did you just... Stop pretending to care about empirical reality? Do you not see the, the numbers ticking up? Do you not care about the 100,000 who died? Do you think like, and, and what they do is they'll say, 
Well, there were some projections early on which said 1.5 million were going to die. So now we only have 100,000. It's like, yeah, the 1.5 million was if we did nothing. So we're at 100,000, which is pretty bad compared to other countries, by the way. But, like, you think that's something to celebrate? So it's so funny, and it's, he's so smug. Like, the reason why the market is, is doing well is that it's been totally decoupled from the rest of the economy. Corporations are doing well because what was the first thing that Congress did when COVID-19 hit? They made damn sure, oh, we're going to bail out the corporations. We're going to bail out the wealthy. We're going to do a $5 trillion congressional bailout package. And uh, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, a Goldman Sachs lackey, he gets to determine where the bailout money goes. There's going to be no oversight. There's going to be no strings attached. A lot of these companies are going to take the money and then fire people anyway. And on top of that, like I just said, the Federal Reserve is going to prop up the economy or, or, excuse me, not the economy, the stock market by pumping a trillion dollars of liquidity in per day. So the reason why, Joe, everything appears to be okay in terms of the numbers that you value is because we fully implemented corporate socialism. Well, guess what? The people are dying out there. We're going to have an eviction crisis. We're going to have a foreclosure crisis as soon as this pandemic is over. People cannot pay the bills. We needed UBI. We needed a nationalization of wages so people could weather the storm and get through this. Germany has 3.9% unemployment right now because they furloughed everybody and nationalized wages instead of firing people. Here we didn't do that. We fire people. So unemployment is over 20%. So the idea that he's acting like, "Uh well, everything's okay now, you're a total moron. And you don't look at economic indicators, which are actually important, which actually show how the country's doing. Joe Kiernan really thinks the country is good because the stock market has been socialized. Do you understand that? Do you understand how silly that is? What we have is what Martin Luther King said is socialism for the wealthy and rugged individualism and laissez-faire capitalism for the poor. That's what we have. Now, this idiot just looks at the numbers for the wealthy and goes, everything's okay. And he looks at 100,000 COVID deaths and he's like, it could have been over a million. So he thinks he's like, he's a genius and everything's okay and there was no need to panic. And this poor guy, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who again, I'm sure I disagree with him on a zillion things, but he's like, I'm surrounded by total idiots, which gets to my final point, which is Joe Kiernan and everybody who worked at CNBC didn't see any of the, the national crises coming. Most importantly, the 2008-2009 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. CNBC acted as a cheerleader, a cheerleader for corporate America and for Wall Street in the lead up to that crash. What they do is they invite on CEOs from these various companies, and then the CEOs tell everybody, everything is fine. Please don't panic. Please keep giving me your money. Please do not, you know, do a run on the banks or anything like that. The housing market is totally fine. It is not going to crash. We haven't been lying and saying that these subprime packages are AAA, even though they're total trash. We haven't. Please make sure that you don't, that you continue to invest with us. And guys like Joe Kiernan and everybody on CNBC be like, oh, yes, we've invited all the financial experts and they've told us that everything's going to be okay with the market. Yes. And then Lehman Brothers goes down and then, you know, the entire uh, housing market collapses and implodes and the economy tanks. And unemployment goes over 
every step of the way, these guys on CNBC prove they are propagandists for Wall Street and corporate America, and they have no idea what the hell they're doing. And that's exactly what you're seeing from Joe Kiernan here. And he's smug about it, too. By the way, the other he's, he's made this show before. You know how he's made this show? By being a loud, vehement, aggressive climate science denier. He's one of these guys who thinks it's a hoax. And this guy's on TV for hours a day. Where's the suit and tie? So he's sure, mm, look at me, yes, I'm wearing a, a, a shirt and tie, and I'm, I look like an old, official, businessy white man, so please, go by what I say. These guys are idiots. These guys are losers. These guys don't know anything. They keep proving time and time again that they're total morons. The only reason they're in this position is because they're willing to do the propaganda to prop up the system. And so that's why he says, oh, look at the market's great. It's not that the market, stock market is totally decoupled from your average American's experience. No, it's that the market's great. Everything's fine. The economy's fine. COVID-19 is defeated. Open everything up. Open everything up. And by the way, the YouTube algorithm will treat CNBC like an authoritative news source and treat me like I'm a leper and shove me to the side and uh, deprioritize my videos because I don't have decorum or civility and I'm just a guy in his own studio. Whereas these guys, you know, so CNBC, oh, they got a lot of numbers and stuff on the bottom of the screen. They're so official. So what'll YouTube do? Prop up CNBC, prop up CNN, prop up MSNBC, prop up Fox News, people who've been wrong, outlets that have been wrong, time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. And then there's us, you know, and every other new media outlet, hell of a lot more sane, hell of a lot more rational, agree or disagree with us. We tell you up front what our biases are. These guys hide it, pretend they're objective, are wrong about everything, and still get preferential treatment. Un acceptable. But here we are. So this is what you'll see on uh, CNBC in the middle of the day. Bunch of idiots arguing, bunch of idiots being wrong about everything. And that's exactly in line with what you would have gotten from CNBC last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. Let me do one more before we take a break, bitch. Donald Trump and Twitter. Donald Trump is going to go at it with Twitter. This is an interesting story that I enjoy very much. So President Trump tweeted something a couple days ago that led to Twitter rolling out a new feature in response. So here's what he said. There's no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. The governor of California is sending ballots to millions of people. Anyone living in the state, no matter who they are or how they got there, will get one. That will be followed up with professionals telling all these people, many of whom have never even thought of voting before, how and for whom to vote. This will be a rigged election. No way! (laughs) He's so ridiculous. So, all right, uh, just up front, let's get this out of the way. 
there is zero evidence that mail-in elections are any more or less fraudulent than regular schmegular go in-person voting. Okay? In fact, the very last time Trump talked about this issue, he was saying, demanding votes are totally rigged and they're totally fake news and we don't like them at all. And by the way, yesterday we had a special election or two and the Republicans won it in the mail-in voting. You just said that the mail-in voting is rigged and it's fake news. And then you said the Republicans won it. So are the Republicans winning it? Did they steal it? Did the Republicans steal from the Democrats? I'll wait. Come on, man. Oh, my God, he's so dumb. How do you contradict yourself in the same sentence? You did it in the same sentence. It's so fake news. It's so rigged. Mail-in ballots got to be totally thrown out. They're not real. And two Republicans won the other day, and there's very good Republicans. In fact, I like them very much. (laughs) Uh All right, man, listen. The problem with elections in the U.S., I mean, there are many, but we should have paper ballots. We should have ranked choice voting. We should not have, under any circumstances, private companies being involved with the election, like Diebold, for example. I don't know how many of you saw that documentary from back in the day of, like, a private company was involved in the election and, like, there were giant investors to George W. Bush and Republicans or whatever it was. Okay, that's not okay. Or, like, what happened in Iowa with Mayor Pete. So we have this app that just crashed and isn't at all shady in any way, shape, or form, and it turns out that Mayor Pete and his people donated quite a bit to the app uh, and his creation, and the people who created it love Mayor Pete. And now, oh, would you look at that? He came out and declared victory early. And, uh, you know, it, hey, oh, look, it looks like he won by, like, half a state delegate elect or whatever. Everybody shut up, shut up, shut up, and move on. So there are there sketchy things that go on in U.S. elections? Yes. I mean, in 2016, it's been proven that the DNC did everything they could to rig it against Bernie Sanders. So there are super sketchy things that happen in elections. I'm not saying our elections are perfect. But what I am saying is, There is zero evidence, particularly that mail-in ballots are any more or less bad than uh, in-person voting. So, and I don't know why he got this stuck in his craw. I don't understand it. Like, why is this the thing you're like, this is not okay? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So anyway, Twitter decided to roll out a new feature. They're like, okay, well, he keeps repeating this claim. This claim is verifiably false. Even Fox News came out and was like, That's, it's not true. Um, and it says now underneath this tweet, get the facts about mail-in voting. And it, it's a link. You click the link. It takes you to what they view as verifiable sources that, you know, basically fact-check the president. And then Trump you know, heard the story about how they're going to, like, fact-check his tweets now, and he goes out on Twitter and he says the following. Um, Twitter is now interfering in the 2020 presidential election. They're saying my statement on mail-in ballots, which will lead to massive corruption and fraud, is incorrect, based on fact-checking by fake news CNN and the Amazon Washington Post. Twitter is completely stifling free speech, and I, as president, will not allow it to happen. Republicans feel that social media totally excuse me, social media platforms totally silence conservative voices. We will strongly regulate or close them down before we can ever allow this to happen. We saw what they attempted to do and failed in 2016. We can't let a more sophisticated version of that happen again. Twitter has now shown 
that everything we have been saying about them and their compatriots is correct. Big action to follow. And so today, as I'm talking to you guys now, he's unveiling an executive order against um, Twitter. I don't know the specifics of it yet, but there were some um, rumors that it was like removing their liability protection or whatever. I don't know what it's going to be. It's almost certainly not going to be um, what I prefer, which I'll tell you what I prefer in a second. But all right, let's let's talk about what what Twitter did here now. When it comes to this specific claim, Trump is 100% incorrect. What he's saying is not true. And on top of that, what he's saying is actually pretty stupid. Okay? But put that aside. Put that aside. The idea of Twitter now getting involved in fact checks, totally hate it, not okay. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, of all people, came out after this story and said, okay, look, we're a big social media company. Twitter's a big social media company. This is not what we do. Like, our, this is not what we do. Our job as social media companies, the whole idea of it was, hey, it's like a totally free and open forum. It's like a message board. Like, we're just going to be the platform that allows people to come and speak their mind. We are in no way, shape, or form involved, involved in filtering content, censoring, deplatforming, you know, going through everything and determining what's okay and what's not okay. Our whole point is... We are just the medium through which you guys express whatever you want to express. Once you do this, well, now you're saying, well, we will be the ultimate arbiters of truth. We will be the ministry of truth. We will determine what's true and what's false. But that begs the question, who watches the watchmen? Like, the, the, such a basic response. And they don't, it, like, it doesn't occur to them. And I honestly think... This is just Jack and Twitter caving to pressure from elite media idiots who see Trump say crazy things like, somebody has to do something about this. Yes, you do it. You go out on your show. You rebut what he says. It's your goddamn job. You're the media. Instead of begging, Mods, Mods, Mommy and Daddy, come tell him to stop saying these things that I don't like. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's so frustrating because who, who watches The Watchmen? Now what you're going to do is you're going to prop up certain outlets as authoritative sources. Okay, well, the next logical question, the next logical problem is, well, there's going to be plenty of people who go, I don't agree with who you picked to be authoritative voices. You pick CNN, you pick the Washington Post. Okay, right off the bat, those are two super questionable outlets. The Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Trump's right about that. So they're going to bend over backwards to not, you know, do the proper investigative reporting into certain issues like Amazon's labor violations. That's just one example. When it comes to CNN, here's an outlet that got Russiagate provably, verifiably wrong at every single turn. They were not authoritative on that issue. But now you're propping them up like they are authoritative on that issue. So these are, there are no perfect philosopher kings who are objectively correct about everything. So you can't have a system where you have a ministry of truth where they get to interject whenever they want and they get to say, no, I think that's wrong. The most important point you could ever think of on this topic is this. If we had a Twitter, and Twitter did fact-checking, back when there was the lead-up to the Iraq War in 2002 and 2003, what would they have said? Would they have said that the people who are arguing Saddam is not connected to Osama bin Laden? He doesn't have weapons of mass destruction? This is all propaganda for a war that Washington, D.C. has wanted for a long time. 
would that person have been considered correct? No, you know what would have happened? The fact checkers would have stepped in and said, this is fake news. This isn't true. The truth is, Saddam Hussein was working with Osama bin Laden on 9-11. The truth is he has weapons of mass destruction. We saw Colin Powell hold up the vial at the UN, and that's all the evidence you need. Colin Powell, respected general, you're going to disagree with him? We take his word over yours. You're factually wrong. He's factually right. You see the problem with this? We don't even need to go back that far. What would Twitter have done in the 2016 election when it was proven through WikiLeaks, the DNC rigged the 2016 primary against Bernie Sanders, and here's all the evidence for it laid out in detail. What would Twitter have done when accounts like mine tweet about that and go into details about that? You know what they would have done? Not only would they have said, Kyle's factually wrong, they also would have gone a step further and said, this is Russian propaganda. Because maybe WikiLeaks got this from Russia. So... Since they got it from Russia, we're just going to say the source is enough to consider it totally illegitimate. Now we're going to argue Kyle's acting as a foreign agent. Ban him from the platform. Don't say this wouldn't have happened because we know based on all of the mainstream media discourse, this is exactly what happened. If you spoke about the rigging of the primary in 2016, you were accused of being a Russian agent. Sowing discord or whatever freaky stupid term they used. Do you not see the problem? Listen, it's not that, hey, there will be a slippery slope if you put this in place. It's that there already is a slippery slope. Nobody's a perfectly objective philosopher king. So, listen, it's so stupid. And Jack and Twitter are just caving to the media when they cry for the mods and they want, somebody's got to stop him. He's the freaking president. If he's wrong, you do your job. It's not Twitter's job. It's not Facebook's job. I would have respected these companies so much more if they just said, eh, 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 eh. this isn't what we do. You're begging us to do something that we don't do. It's like you're looking at a sports team and you say, well, why don't you guys do my taxes? That's not what we do. We're a sports team. We don't do taxes. So when they said to you, Twitter, why don't you fact check? That's not what we do. We're, the, we're a social media company. We're the middleman. We're the medium through which people express themselves. We're not going to get involved. Because now, who do you fact check? Why do you fact check them? Do you do it with only big accounts? Do you do it with big and small accounts? Who are going to be the outlets that you say are the verifiable outlets? By the way, the right-wingers are going to say, hey, man, you got to put some of our outlets on there. And because people want to say, oh, we got to be bipartisan, now they're going to allow right-wing outlets on there. Now you're going to have outlets like, I don't even know, Daily Caller, Breitbart, Washington Examiner, something like that, also on the list of people and outlets that fact check. No, there, there is no way you could do a ministry of truth that's actually objective and correct. No matter who you think, oh, yeah, these people are, are official and correct. No, they've gotten a lot of things wrong, I guarantee you. Nobody should be in that position. So this is just really stupid, really dumb. This is another consequence of um, the Trump era where now you have a bunch of idiot Democrats who are like, yes, yes, fact check me, daddy, yes. It's just so stupid, man. I hate it so much. Oh, I hate it so much. Now, I told you guys I would tell you what I prefer Trump to do. This is what I would want him to do. He should make all the major social media companies, when they go over a certain threshold, they become public utilities. And that would mean that the First Amendment is expanded and, you know, First Amendment protections would apply to the platform. Because when you look at Facebook, when you look at Twitter – Now that's the public square. 
that's the equivalent of what used to be the public square because they're so big and so powerful and have so many people. So First Amendment protections should apply to people commenting on these platforms. And um, that doesn't mean you, any, that people could do direct threats of violence. Of course you can. That doesn't mean you could do harassment or whatever. Of course you can. There are certain lines that exist, even in First Amendment case law. Um, but I think the line should be First Amendment case law. And I think we should have basically treat Twitter and Facebook as public utilities. That's not, that's not to say they can't make profits because they, they originally started as private companies. I don't want to like fully nationalize them. Um, but you can treat them like public utilities, and you can regulate them and expand the First Amendment. Trump is not going to do that, which is a shame. But what I will say to everybody out there who agrees with me on this, understand, if you agree with me on this, you are taking the left-wing position. So if you're a right-winger and you like what I'm saying, because, you know, in my conception of what makes sense, Trump wouldn't be fact-checked and nobody would be fact-checked, and there wouldn't be deplatforming and censorship all willy-nilly, if you like what I'm saying, you are taking the left-wing position. You understand? The right-wing position is, hey, man, it's a private company. They can do whatever the hell they want to do. It's their right. It's their right as a private company. It's Twitter's own platform. You can't go to their platform and say, I'm going to make you do X, Y, and Z. No. They're their own platform. They make their own decisions. That's the right-wing position. But if you agree with what I'm saying, you believe in the left-wing position, which leads to the next logical point. And I heard David Packman make this point which is if you think that social media companies should be public utilities, why wouldn't you say the entire Internet should be a public utility? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't the Internet be a public utility? And what's funny is you have this total reversal of positions where now a lot of right-wingers say, oh, you know, Twitter and Facebook, they should be public utilities, expand the First Amendment. But then they also say, no, 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 we think we don't believe in net neutrality. You know, you should have uh, private companies ha have make their own mind up and determine. Hey, I want to slow access to certain websites because you know they're not in a business agreement with me. So the way that works is you could have an internet provider, and the internet provider. Let's just use names for argument's sake here. Let's say Spectrum or Verizon. So you have Verizon as the Internet provider. They don't have a deal with, I don't know, fill in the blank of some website. And then since they don't have a deal with that website, they slow down access to that website. And the right-wing position is they're private companies. Let them do what they want, and you wouldn't have a totally free and open Internet. You would have like a segmented and fractured Internet where everything would have packaged deals. Like, okay, if you get... Verizon, here's your, here are the websites you get full access to. These, these other ones are slower. If you have this provider, here are the websites you have access to. All the other ones are slower. The right-wing position and the one that they clearly took and screamed from the rooftops is, no, oh, yeah, let the private companies do whatever they want. Let the Internet service providers do whatever they want. They're their own companies. They can do what they want. The left-wing position is, no, if you are an Internet service provider, treat it like a public utility, have rules that all the websites needs to be equal access to all the websites. That's the left-wing position. So anyway, my point here is, if, you're, if you like what my position is on this, you're a hell of a lot more left-wing than you think you are, if you're a right-winger and you're listening to this. And maybe that should open up some pathways in your mind to go, well, what other issues am I actually left-wing on? Maybe I've been duped by right-wingers with stupid culture war nonsense, and when it comes to actual policy issues, I'm left-wing. 
So I'm just, I'm just letting everybody know that if you like what my position is, if you like net neutrality, if you like expanding the First Amendment protections to social media companies and treating them as public utilities, congratulations, you're a left winger on those issues. And we just have this weird realignment because people are partisan idiots. And so the Republicans are taking the left wing position and the Democrats are taking the right wing position because apparently nobody has principal beliefs anymore. It's all about your, your tribe and your team and what they're mostly saying. Well, time to leave that aside and evaluate the issues on a case-by-case basis. And then, you know, you believe a lot more reasonable things. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, I still got plenty more show for you, including um, two amazing Trump tweets I want to show you about how he apparently has no idea that he's president. It's kind of hilarious. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
Son of a gun! I switched it up on you. Switched it up on y'all, man. Okay, so... Let's dive right into it. Let's not play around. For the first time ever, it is chilly in the studio. Usually, I am burning up in here. I prefer it chilly to burning up, so... There's nothing wrong with that. It's funny, because inside... I would rather be cold than hot. But outside, I'd rather be hot than cold. Does that... Wow, that just occurred to me now. Like, I mean, that's an obvious contradiction, right? But it's definitely how I feel. When I'm inside, I would rather have it be too cold than too hot. But when I'm outside, I would definitely rather be too hot than too cold. I don't know how I'm going to square that circle, dog. <laughs> I don't, that makes no sense at all. I mean, I guess maybe because when you're too hot outside, you still have, like, the potential of, like, a little breeze to, like, take the edge off a little bit. But when you're too cold outside, there is no, like, there's nothing that could give you that, like, little bit of relief to warm you up. Like, if you're too cold, you're just too cold. I don't know. I don't know why that is. I just learned something about myself. Or it's not that I learned it about myself. It's the first time I vocalized it. What do you guys think about that? When you're inside, would you rather have it be too cold or too hot? And when you're outside, would you rather have it be too hot or too cold? And is there a difference? Is there a contradiction like with me? <laughs> yeah. I, and the other thing is, when I'm inside, I like... I like feeling like the air has, like, some circulation to it. Like, I don't like the stagnant feel. So when I sleep at night, I need uh, I need a fan on because I have to feel like, oh, like a little breeze, like a little bit of air circulation because when there is none, I don't know, it feels, like, stuffy, and I almost get, feel, like, claustrophobic in a situation like that. So I, I don't – I know there are plenty of people out there who sleep with a, with a fan on so they can relate to what I'm talking about, but – and I think that also comes into play with how I prefer it colder inside than warmer. Anyway, we're all a bundle of contradictions, are we not? But i that's the first time it really occurred to me. Like, I actually said it out loud. Like, actually, yeah, outside, I prefer hot to cold. Inside, I prefer cold to hot. Very weird. Anyway, um, <clears throat> all right, let's go to Donald Trump and how he apparently doesn't know that he's president. So there are two things from Trump here that I want to share with you, and this highlights a total disconnect between how he governs and how he postures. So he said this the other day, warrantless surveillance of Americans is wrong. Now, up front, I want to say, totally agree with that. 100% agree, couldn't agree more. It's wrong. It's always been wrong. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. Um, couldn't agree more. But Donald Trump signed the reauthorization of the Patriot Act in 2018 with increased spying powers. So he says warrantless surveillance of Americans is wrong, but his action showed he's actually totally fine with it, and he further exacerbated it, in fact. So why is he saying that? Well, 
He's saying that because of, you know how he's been tweeting hashtag Obamagate in all caps with exclamation points over the past, like, couple weeks? I think that one of the aspects of Obamagate is that, like, the, the, um, the intelligence agencies under the Obama administration were spying on, like, General Flynn, but also maybe Trump. And I don't know whether that's true or false, the Trump part, but he definitely thinks it's true that he was being spied on by Obama or the intelligence agencies under the Obama administration. And so when the warrantless surveillance is of him, he's like, oh, my, somebody ought to do something about this. You can't just spy on innocent people like that. That's not right. Violation of privacy. Unconstitutional. It's like, yeah, but that was, that was the case. Whether they spied on you or not, that was always the case, that spying on innocent people is wrong. But you were totally fine with it when you didn't know that they were spying on you. You didn't think they were spying on you. You expanded the Patriot Act. So this, I mean, this is that kind of Washington hypocrisy that's so frustrating. It, it reminds me of when you have George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, all of them has, have said at one point or another that they smoked marijuana, I think even some of them may even have admitted that they did cocaine once or twice. And, like, at the same time they did that, they expanded the war on drugs. Or at the very least, they perpetuated the war on drugs. Not okay. Not okay, because if you were caught, you never would have been president. Now would you have? But you're going to put some other person out there, some other young person who maybe someday in the future can be president, but now they can't because they were just caught with some weed and now it's on their record. And now when they run, if they ever run for office, it's going to come up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be disqualifying in many respects. They probably won't get the number of votes that they need. The hypocrisy there, it's just stunning. And that's exactly what we have here with Trump on this issue. Warless surveillance of Americans is wrong. Do something about it. You're president, bro. Do something about it. So we'll see. There's whispers now about they're, they're not going to re-up it again, the Patriot Act. I hope. I hope. Do it. Do the right thing. That's what I say. But um, it's just annoying that it had to impact him first before he was like, hey, this isn't right. It's like, yeah, but if you thought about it for three seconds beforehand, you could have came to the same conclusion. It's like when Republican politicians are anti-gay marriage, and then they find out somebody in their own family is gay. They're like, you know, I actually think that love is love, and it doesn't matter if it's gay, straight, whatever it may be. So I'm for gay marriage now. It took somebody in your own family being gay for you to recognize that? Like, you couldn't stop and think about it for three seconds and go, yeah, I mean, who cares what my personal feelings on it are? There there are people, they want love. If they want to get married, let them get married. It's it's just frustrating. But anyway, so that's the first thing that was annoying. Um, And then Trump also said this. We are acting as a police force, not the fighting force that we are in Afghanistan. After 19 years, it is time for them to police their own country. Bring our soldiers back home, but closely watch what is going on and strike with the thunder like never before, if necessary. Okay, so that's the thing that Trump likes to do, where it's like, hey, we should get out. But then he also says, like, but, it, but believe me, bro, if I'm going to do something, oh, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make sure, I'm going to mess shit up, bro. I'm, I got my drones, I got my... My fighter jets, like, I got my soldiers. If I need to do something, 
I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna mess shit up. Like this is remember when he dropped the bomb randomly in Afghanistan, like the biggest bomb that was ever dropped or something like that. It was a big story in his like first year in office, I think. It's like that's his instinct is like war is bad, but like, bro, I'm I'm a tough guy and I'll mess you up if need be. Like that's what he's doing there. But I mean, he said he said bring the troops home, let them police their own country, bring our soldiers back home. That's what he said. You're the president. You can bring them home right now. You do right now. Like right now. Right now. You're the commander in chief. <laughs> you don't need any. You can just do it. Bring them home. You can just do it. There's no, like, there's no process. There's no steps. You could order all the troops home right now. You can begin a full withdrawal right this second. But he's not going to do it. He's going to tweet about it, and he's going to do Dickie McGee's acts, and the military-industrial complex is going to churn along, and the 18 neocon warhawks in his administration will still get the last word. I mean, this happened previously. He tweet, he's tweeted this before, and then the news is that behind the scenes, you had, like, his generals and the neocons in his administration, like, you know, Pompeo and Bolton back in, at the time, because he was in there at the time. Um, they just looked at his tweet, and they were like, ha, ha. Yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna get out. But like, you're the president. You get the last say on it. You're the commander in chief. You can just bring him home, but he never does. See, he'd rather bark about it on social media, get the points for saying we're gonna get out, and then not get out. So he keeps the status quo going, so he keeps the military industrial complex happy and and you know, all the insiders in DC happy. Um, and everybody making money off these wars, he keeps them happy. As he pretends, he gets the credit for being like, you know, the anti-interventionist and, and the, the peacenik, even though he's not that. And honestly, not for nothing, that's a lot like what Obama used to do. Obama always used to give speeches and say like, we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna be totally out by, there's one tweet that's still up on Twitter back when Obama was giving one of his State of the Union addresses. addresses. He said by the year, whatever year it was, like, 2011, we're going to be totally out of Afghanistan. And then it's like, that came and went, and we're still in Afghanistan. And this is what he did as well. He'd give a speech, say pretty words, say we're withdrawing, we're on our way out, things are looking good, we'll be totally out by this date, and, and then we just didn't get out. So every president since we started these wars has expanded the wars, or at least perpetuated the wars, and paid lip service to getting out, but didn't get out. And I hate that because at least, at least with the neocons, they'll tell you up front what their position is and they believe it. So like Bolton will tell you like, no, I want to do more war and I will increase them. That's what I'm going to do. Where Trump's like, I'm, I want me. I want to get out, bro. This war's bad, bro. Let's get out. And then he continues them. Homeboy's talking like he has no power. He's got all the power in the world. He's got all the power in the world. Do something. Get us out. Get us out right now. Think about all the money and the lives that have been wasted. Thousands of U.S. soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of the injuries, all the PTSD where we have a crisis of soldiers committing suicide as a result of that, all the innocent civilians that died in Iraq and Afghanistan when you put them together, hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians the trillions and trillions of dollars are wasted 
And for what? For nothing except profits for the military and industrial complex. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And congratulations. You got your hands on Iraqi oil and you got your hands on minerals in Afghanistan. Tremendous mineral wealth in Afghanistan. That's what it's all about. It ain't right, man. It ain't right. But, you know, hey, Don, it's, it's time to stop tweeting like you got no power and you're an outsider. You are the ultimate insider. You are the president. You could stop the warrantless surveillance. You could stop the wars right now, but you're not going to do it. You're just going to chirp more and then do Dickie McGee's acts. Okay, next. This next story is just funny to me. This is um, Trump was doing a press conference, and he made an offhand remark to a reporter uh, that I thought was, was pretty noteworthy. questions about uh, a couple of things you've tweeted about in the last few days. Uh, were you meaning to criticize Vice President Biden for wearing a mask yesterday? And can you explain why you've been tweeting about a conspiracy theory that has been proven to not be true? Now, Biden can wear a mask, but he was standing uh, outside with his wife, perfect conditions, perfect weather. They're inside, they don't wear masks, and so I thought it was very unusual that he had one on. But I thought that was fine. I wasn't criticizing him at all. Why would I ever do a thing like that? And uh, your second question was, I couldn't hear you. The can second, you, can you take it up because I cannot hear I'll, you? I'll just speak louder, sir. Oh, okay, because you want to be politically correct. Go ahead. No, sir. I just want to wear the mask. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh. Come on, man. It's like he's like <laughs> he's like a parody of an anti-sized right-wing person. That's what he is. He said, oh, you want to keep the mask on. You want to be politically correct. Uh, so that's what you want to do. You want to be politically correct. Now, it seemed like he was half joking. So I don't, like, it, this, his story isn't that serious. He's obviously fine with the guy keeping the mask on. But it's just funny to me that we're, we're now in a place in time where there are people out there who genuinely think if you want to wear a mask during a pandemic, that you're politically correct. <laughs> My interpretation of somebody wearing a mask during a pandemic is that they want to be safe, they want to be careful, they don't want to die. <laughs> and by the way, there are plenty of people out there who are immunocompromised. And as we know from all the data and all the evidence, people who are immunocompromised and have certain pre-existing conditions, respiratory problems, for example, if they get coronavirus, they get hit hard, son. So, like, if you're older, the numbers show you're at greater risk of coronavirus killing you. If you're immunocompromised or you have, like, respiratory problems or any of a number of problems, you're worse off and you could die. So Trump has no idea. If that guy could have, you know, some sort of pre-existing condition. That guy could be immunocompromised. I mean, he really called it politically correct? <laughs> it's politically correct to wear a mask. Me, bro? I don't wear a mask in a... I'm a, I'm a macho man. I don't wear a mask in a pandemic. All right? <laughs> That's not macho. That's not like... They're freaking... It's a virus, and it's tiny, and it's invisible to the naked eye. 
to not wear a mask, there's nothing like strong about that or masculine about that. Like, and for Trump of all people, like you're always around other people. You're the president. And so whenever you're with somebody, you are with not just them, but everyone that they've been with in the past couple days or, or since the last time they took a shower, let's say, in the last day. So, like, do you really – everybody around you and everybody they've been around in the day, that's a lot of people. If just one of them gets it, then you can get it. It is kind of amazing that he hasn't gotten it to this point, isn't it? Because he was hanging out at Mar-a-Lago, and it was like Bolsonaro was there, and Bolsonaro's – like, right-hand man in his cabinet had corona, and then there was speculation that Bolsonaro had it, and they were all, they were sit eating dinner at the same table with Trump, and they were right next to each other taking pictures. Homeboy was right behind him in one of the pictures, and sort of a miracle that he hasn't had it. Or maybe he has had it, and he has got the immunity, and he's just one of the people who's genetically kind of lucky and predisposed to being asymptomatic. I don't know. We still don't know all that much about this virus. But what I do know is um, wearing a mask is not politically correct. One could argue it's just correct. There was a string of stories that really highlights what the rich think about you. Now, I want to let everybody know before we dive into this, I promise you these are real. I know because I read the entire article. So the first one here is from Bloomberg, and they tweeted the following. It's a modern dilemma for the ultra-wealthy. A yacht awaits, but how to safely reach it without exposure to the germ-ridden masses? In the article, they explain, well, listen, there, we got, there's a, a bunch of places in beautiful Malta where all the yachts are parked. You're far away from the germ-ridden masses. Everybody's just hanging out in their yachts. And what the article describes is, well, there's this jet company, private jet company, which will give you, you can have a sanitized jet that takes you to Malta. From Malta, you hop in a sanitized car. The sanitized car takes you to your yacht where your yacht has already been pre-stocked with everything that you want it to be stocked with and pre-sanitized as well. That's what the article explains. And then they also go on to explain what the deal is with Malta in general, which is it costs like over a million dollars to become a citizen in Malta. But when you become a citizen, it's basically like the tax haven of all tax havens so that billionaires can like pay no taxes effectively. And I'm reading through this article and I'm going, oh my God. So these like ultra wealthy people, they got a hardcore outline, crystal clear system in place as to like what to do in a situation like a pandemic but go ahead and read that headline again and tell me you're not finna buy a guillotine (laughs) 
It's a modern dilemma for the ultra-wealthy. A yacht awaits, but how to safely reach it without exposure to the germ-ridden masses. That's what they think of you. Germ-ridden masses. Exposure to the germ-ridden masses. So uh, all the frontline workers out there who are you know, risking their lives to make sure that the shelves are stocked, this is what they think of you. Now, um, that's pretty bad, this story, but there's a White House advisor by the name of Kevin Hassett, and he was given an interview the other day, and he used a phrase, pretty unfortunate, and this also really shows you what not just the ultra-wealthy think of you, but what elite government officials think of you. Watch this. Our capital stock hasn't been destroyed. Our human capital stock uh, is uh, ready to get back to work. And so that there are lots of reasons to believe that we can get going way faster than we have in previous crises. But I we don't have our capital. Quote, our human capital stock is ready to get back to work. Human capital stock. You're not a person. You're not a human. You are human capital stock. So the idea of you being a, a, a piece of a machine of a capitalist system, that's exactly how they view you. Like you're just part of the way I make more profit. Like that's what it is. Like what, whatever you do, like, oh, you think you're special and you think you have, like, hopes and dreams and a family and a future? And... Like, no, no, no. Your existence is to be a part of a bigger machine. That's it. You're human capital stock. So, in other words, you're viewed in the eyes of the owner class as property. That's what that is. Human capital stock. You're, you're property. Your property, stock, and, you know, I've, I usually hear stock in terms of, like, animals. So that's how you're viewed. You're viewed as, like, an animal. Or you're viewed as, like, the property of the owner class. Our human capital stock is ready to get back to work. We still have, we have 100,000 people who died from this virus. This virus is still rising in more states than it's decreasing. But our human capital stock is ready to get back to work. Germ-ridden masses, human capital stock. I don't know about you guys, but I think maybe we should change the system that we live in because it clearly, clearly doesn't value human life. It just doesn't. We need a system that it's not on you to kind of find a way to squeeze yourself into the existing system and the existing machinery. Like, you're existing to serve the system. The way it should work is the system should exist to serve you and to serve me and to serve all of us. So it shouldn't be like you have to bend over backwards and try to please... It's it's like the debate early on with the stock market. Like, 
We must send some workers to die to appease the stock market gods. Yes. Like, that's the mindset. You have to do something to appease the system. Not the system exists to serve all of us. I think it's time for some big changes. What do you guys think? I mean, the fact that we haven't at the very least moved to a social democratic system is a crime. It's a crime. And I guarantee you it it took massive, massive corruption and propaganda to convince people to be comfortable with and prefer the current capitalist or corporatist system that we have versus something like a Scandinavian social democratic system. Because, you know, any objective look at the evidence and quality of life, you would go, oh, well, they have it better. Let's copy that. But again, it's been a massive effort to keep people dumbed down and propagandized and misled in order to prefer a system like this where they talk about you as germ-ridden masses. It's what the rich talk to you. The ultra-rich talk about you like that. And then also... You're viewed as human capital stock in the eyes of White House advisors. All right, next. All right, this story really pissed me off. So there's a conservative economist by the name of Art Laffer. He went on Fox Business to talk about the idea of more COVID stimulus money for regular people. And um, in typical Art Laffer fashion, he managed to be wrong about absolutely everything. yet again over whether to go big and get another round of stimulus slash relief as Nancy Pelosi wants or or pause as Senator Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is insisting now all around the world the level of stimulus is varied but the United States is at the top of the list so does this mean our recovery will be the fastest joining me now Reagan economist Art Laffer Art uh, some work out uh, over the weekend by Deutsche Bank suggesting that because we we've, we've been the most aggressive between federal and, and, and money and money center uh, printing that our recovery will be the fastest. So is that an argument for adding even more stimulus into the mix? If it were true, it would be Charles, but it's not true. I mean, what you found is in 2008-2009, the countries that had the least stimulus had the biggest, quickest recovery back to normal. Just so. For the record, government spending, Charles, is taxation. Government doesn't create resources. It redistributes resources. Every dollar it gives to someone, it takes from someone else. So that's taxation, and especially when you pay people not to be employed. 600 bucks per week per unemployed worker is a killer for employment and recovery. So just for the facts, I think Deutsche Bank did way out to lunch on that. Well, what about liberal economists who, uh, or some are saying, and they were pressing in over the weekend, that th- this whole conservative argument about debt is ridiculous, and, and these are their words, because it's money we owe ourselves. Why, why are we sweating it to this degree? Why would we stop people from having a better life if it was just cash that we owe to ourselves? 
Yeah, I love that argument. It's so silly. Uh, if you owe me $100, hey, it's just you and me owing ourselves, so let me not pay you back. <laughs> How's that one, Charles? Does that fit well with you? No, of course not. We don't owe it to ourselves. We owe it to specific people, and we borrowed it from others. It's just silly. I mean, you you shouldn't say liberal economists. You just say not very well-educated economists. (laughs) Art Laffer has been proven wrong about absolutely everything. He came up with the Laffer curve. That's been proven wrong. He's one of the, like godfathers of trickle-down economics. Yes, if that sounds familiar to you, it's the ideology under the Reagan administration and the Bush administration, and now the, the Trump administration, and it's an abject failure. The whole idea of it is a rising tide lifts all boats, and let's cut taxes for the rich and then deregulate, and then what will happen is the wealth will trickle down from the top down to regular people. But that doesn't happen. When you do tax cuts for the rich, you know what happens? They take that money. They don't create more jobs. They don't open more businesses. They don't hire more people. They stash it. They stash it. They have tax havens that they use, for example. They don't, they're already wealthy. Any more money you give them, they're going to go, oh, sweet. I don't need to spend this or do anything with it. I could just freaking stash it in the Cayman Islands. And that's what they do. And so the idea that, like, again, it's so ironic. This guy who's really impacted Washington policy for decades, and he's been proven incorrect about everything he said. Guys, Art Laffer is one of the guys, along with Larry Kudlow and many others, who said, no, 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 you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it. With the 2017 Republican tax law that they passed, where 83% of the benefits of that went to the top 1%, don't worry. Because, yes, we're cutting taxes for the rich. Yes, we're deregulating. But it's going to balance the budget. It's not going to add to the deficit. It's not going to do that. Why? And here's the reasoning. Pay attention to this very carefully. They say, well, when we cut taxes for the rich, the economy booms so much that even though the wealthy are paying a lower tax rate, they end up paying more as a raw dollar amount because they make that much more money in profit. So there's so much more growth in the economy that even though the rich are paying a lower tax rate, it's a higher amount in terms of raw dollars. Now, as you know, because you, you know, watch this show, you presumably read other news, that didn't happen. There was a massive increase in the deficit under the Trump administration. So when they say, like, no, 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 our philosophy of trickle-down economics, cuts taxes for the rich, and balances the budget, that doesn't happen. It always, 100% of the time, when you cut taxes for the rich, it adds to the deficit. And they, they never, ever, ever have an answer for that, ever. They just act like they didn't predict that it would, you know, balance the budget or reduce the deficit. They act like they didn't, pre- they act like they didn't predict it, but they did. That is something that they said. It's unbelievable, man. Oh, my God, he's so full of it. Well, let's go through some of what he said here. He says, well, the U.S. is already at the top of the stimulus list. No, it's not. We gave a one-time payment of $1,200 to people. You have European countries paying 75 or 80% of workers' wages in perpetuity through the rest of the crisis. 
What do you mean we're at the top of the stimulus list? Are you insane? But no, see, he counts as part of the stimulus stuff that's not part of the stimulus for regular people. So he counts probably, you know, the Fed pumping liquidity into the marketplace and the $5 trillion in the congressional bailout that's going to corporations at the behest of Steve Mnuchin, the Goldman Sachs guy. He looks at all of that like, oh, that's all stimulus. That all counts as stimulus. No, that's, that's corporate socialism, money handed over to the wealthy and to corporations. That's what that is. That's not stimulus for your average person. But, see, it's, everything he says is totally misleading or an outright lie. U.S. is at the top of the stimulus list. No, because what counts as stimulus? And in my mind, when I hear stimulus, I think direct, you know, some direct attempt to help regular people weather the storm. I think when I hear stimulus, and we are probably at the bottom of the list when it comes to that kind of stimulus. So he's lying. Um, And then he said, well, I mean, go back and look. In 2008 and 2009, the countries with the least stimulus fared the best. Here's why that's totally misleading. The countries that fared the best were in Scandinavia, and I believe Canada actually fared a lot better than the U.S. did. Why did they fare the best? They fared the best because they had marketplace regulation, which didn't allow the crooks and the criminals in the banking industry and on Wall Street. Obviously, they don't have Wall Street in those countries, but they didn't allow the financial industry to be the wild, wild west and run amok and do scams and frauds and get rich as they screw regular people. They didn't allow that. They didn't have totally unregulated subprime mortgage packages which were rated AAA falsely, and so investors got obliterated on that, and the, and the housing market collapsed. So in other words, they had intelligent regulation in place, and so they didn't experience that giant crash as much. So the countries that fared the best didn't need the stimulus because they had the regulation. But what does he say? He says, totally omits the part about the regulation saving those economies, and he says, well... The the countries with the least stimulus fared the best. The only reason they had the least stimulus is because they didn't have the downturn because they had regulation, which, again, ironically, the regulation is something Art Laffer is against. See what what he does here? These are all so slippery and misleading on purpose. Or he's just a total idiot. But I think this is more misleading. Um, And then he says, he talks about the government spending. He goes, well, government spending is taxation. So that's going to be a siphon on the economy. Well, the Fed spending is not taxation. See, he, he's totally unfamiliar with modern monetary theory. He seems totally unfamiliar even with Keynesian economics. He talks about, like, well, the government spending, that's all taxation by definition. No, it's not. If they spend more and they don't raise taxes, that money is not coming from taxes. That money is, in the case of the Fed, you move a couple decimal points on the computer, and that's the end of it. Now, you could agree or disagree with that, but... Without a doubt, it's not coming in the form of taxes. So when he says, well, the government spending is taxes, that's not true. And then finally he says, well, you know, the problem is we're paying people not to be employed. We have a pandemic, Art. Nobody is taking off. Nobody is unemployed right now because they're lazy. People are unemployed because the economy is collapsing and we have a pandemic. This guy, it's told, everything he said there is not true. Everything he said. Even the idea, oh, when everything is, when there's, you know, a downturn, 
not doing stimulus is the way to go. Are you kidding me? Then we, we never would have gotten out of the Great Depression. You know what got us out of the Great Depression? Two things, the New Deal and World War II. Massive, massive, massive government spending projects. They just ignore, they just ignore it. I mean, I cannot fully explain to you in words just how wrong he is about everything. It's stunning how wrong he is. And it really is like, it's so, it's so evil that you have these right-wing people who kind of have gained a lot of influence these days by pointing out problems with left-wingers going too far on social issues, like the whole social justice warrior thing, and oh my God, they look so ridiculous. But what happens is you turn people off to the broader left, and then people become like part of these right-wing movements. And this is the guy steering the damn ship. This is the guy who's had an impact in every single administration, right-wing administration, for decades. And he's wrong about everything economically. And in fact, his ideology really just serves as a vehicle for the wealthy to take all the money and screw regular people and run out the back door with all the money. Cutting taxes for the rich, it really, like the whole ideology of trickle-down economics could be nothing but an elaborate ruse to just give more money to the wealthy and screw over working people. Like, I want my, my buddies in suits and ties to, to make all the money, pay no taxes, and then screw the rest of what happens. I'll just come up with an ideological framework to BS everybody, to make them think like there's a high-minded intellectual reason to let the rich take all the money. And it's just so sad that people get duped and, and dragged into these right-wing movements when this is the dumbest stuff I've ever heard in my life. Like, the stuff he believes isn't even plausible at face value. It's so easy to pick apart. And, and again, he's had so much influence in Washington, D.C. policy. It's really, really pathetic. It's really disturbing. And unfortunately, I don't see them getting off of the, this kind of ideology anytime soon. I really don't. Because this guy had just as much, as much of an influence on the fake populist Donald Trump as he did on, you know, the, the right-wing, Kool-Aid-drinking George W. Bush administration. And before that... Uh, the George W. Bush administration, the George H. W. Bush administration, like, and the Democrats are bad, too, when it comes to economics, but, I mean, these right-wing administrations, they just, it, nothing they believe is correct about economics. Everything he said here is false, and it's really, really disturbing. Okay, next. There's a man by the name of George Floyd. Um, he was killed by police officers in Minneapolis. Now, I want to show you, this is uh, the CNN report on what happened, and uh, then we'll come back and talk about it. This here is uh, George Floyd's family, and I don't know how well you can see it, but they got, there's a picture of George Floyd right there. I think in this clip you see like a little portion of what happened. Um, it's disturbing when you see the whole thing. But anyway, here's the CNN report on it, and then we'll discuss. Breaking news in our national lead right now. Moments ago, the chief of police in Minneapolis announced that he had fired four police officers involved in the arrest and subsequent death 
of a black man in police custody. George Floyd repeatedly told the officers that he could not breathe after an officer knelt on his neck, pinning him to the ground during an arrest. A bystander captured yesterday's incident on a cell phone camera, warning this might be difficult to watch. Police say Floyd was resisting arrest on a forgery charge, but this disturbing video we're about to show you did not capture that. It begins when Floyd's already on the ground. The video posted on Facebook goes on for 10 minutes. You can hear several witnesses ask the officer, why does he still have his knee on George Floyd's neck? CNN's Omar Jimenez is live for us in Minneapolis. And Omar, uh, give us the details from the press conference with the police chief. Well, the press conference with that police chief, one of the big things he was trying to call for was a push for trust between the police and the community here. And this, was, in part, came from the swift action we saw this police department take. Let's remember, this just happened yesterday, and within 24 hours, all four of the officers involved with this have been fired. And we've seen, sadly, many of these cases play out throughout the country, and that hasn't, that type of action, I should say, hasn't come as quickly as we have seen. And when you watch that video that, again, is disturbing to many people, it plays out for 10 minutes. He is communicating with the officers, George Floyd, on the ground there for some time, saying, I can't breathe, I need to be taken to, you know, he needs medical help in regards to that. And then at one point, the words begin to trail off, and then his body isn't moving at all. His bystanders are literally asking for officers to check for a pulse. So that was uh, obviously very, very disturbing video. Um, there's been now, in response, there's been protests in L.A., and there were protests and also, like, riots and looting happening in Minneapolis as well. Um, and, they're, you know, they're Black Lives Matter uh, protests, and totally understandable the people are out there in the streets after seeing something like this. And um, so the officers were fired, as you heard them say there, but... At least as far as the recording of this segment, there's been no charges yet. So they haven't been arrested. They haven't been charged. I mean, that's the next logical thing is you have to arrest them and you have to charge them. Um, and I think a really important point that should be brought up now beforehand is you've got to do a special prosecutor. Because how many times have we seen instances of a police officer doing something egregious and illegal and then... They basically know the prosecutor who's going after them, and the prosecutor, they have a trick. What they do is they overcharge, and then the, they get exonerated. And then it's almost like an elaborate, almost like they're doing professional wrestling. Like they're pretending to go after them, and then they get off, and then there's no accountability and there's no justice. So be careful of that trick. In all these sorts of instances, they should appoint a special prosecutor um, to, to look into it and to do the case because you don't want to have any kind of buddy-buddy relationship between the officers who committed the crimes and the people who are supposed to be prosecuting them. So I think that's a really important point uh, that should be made up front. And listen, this was oh, – here's what I fear. I fear either – they don't arrest them and they don't have a trial, although I do think they probably will arrest them and have a trial. 
But I do think that what I just described might be how it unfolds, which is the pro- it won't be a special prosecutor, and then the prosecutor will overcharge, and then they'll be free, and then that'll be disastrous. And I, I have to tell you guys, the only case that I remember there being justice served when it involved police violence and police brutality was uh, the Walter Scott case. And I don't know how many of you remember that, but that Walter Scott was running away from the police officer and was like pretty far away from the police officer. And the officer pulled the gun and shot him in the back repeatedly and killed him. And that's the only one where I remember, and again, my memory could be failing me, so correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the only one I remember where the police officer was actually found guilty of murder. So I don't, all the other high-profile cases, I remember them getting off to one extent or another. So I don't know, again, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But um, there should be a special prosecutor. They should be charged. Um, And I don't know if they're going to get them on on murder because it's notoriously so hard to get police officers on murder if a jury or a judge has any inkling that it wasn't nefarious and malicious on purpose, then they're going to give the officer the benefit of the doubt. So perhaps they would be able to maybe get a manslaughter charge out of this. Um, I think, I mean, this is, we saw it happen with Eric Garner where it was, uh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And they kept, in his case, it was an illegal chokehold from the police officer, and he died. And in this case, he keeps saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And at some point, he stops saying it, and the guy's neck is still, or the guy's knee is still on his neck. For God's sake, listen to people. Listen to people. Not everything is like, like what, what do you think is going to happen? You think he's lying about that? And then what, what, you already have him restrained. What the hell do you think is going to happen? And again, this was over a nonviolent crime. They say he... He did forgery on a check or something, and we don't even know if that's true, to be fair, but this, like, treating people like this, there's definitely an element of dehumanization that goes into that. And you and I both know that if it was a Wall Street banker, if it was a white dude wearing a suit and a tie, there's no way they would treat a white dude wearing a suit and a tie like that. So there is an element of dehumanization, and they can't act like this and get away with it. It's just, it's totally unacceptable. So uh, I hope they try them, and we'll see. I mean, they should be arrested already, but they're not. At the very least, they've already been fired. Now, I do want to bring, you know, kind of bring in the broader issue here because I think it's really important. Here are the actions that need to be taken, in my opinion, when it comes to police reform across the country. This is all uh, campaign zero stuff is what it's called, and – so this goes back to like the original, original Black Lives Matter movement. And now there's kind of like a newer movement, which is different policy demands. But the original stuff from Campaign Zero, I think, is actually just 100% spot on. And here are the changes that need to happen. So we have, you know, a police system in this country and a structure that's a hell of a lot more humane. So here, here's, the, here's the platform for Campaign Zero, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, They should end broken windows policing. They should have community oversight of police. They should have limits, strong limits to the use of force. They need to independently investigate and prosecute. That's what I was talking about before with a special prosecutor. You need community representation within the police departments because that makes it a lot less likely that they'll 
react in such a hostile and violent way if these are people from your community and you know them or know of them. You, have, um, you need to have body cameras and, and filming of the police happening all the time. They shouldn't be allowed to turn it off at penalty of law. Um, you need new training. They need to, to prioritize de-escalation in these situations as opposed to the opposite, which is, you know, they say don't take even the slightest risk or the slightest chance and basically be aggressive. Um, we need to end for-profit policing. That one's clearly a no-brainer. We need to demilitarize the police. You know, they, they get a lot of former, like, stuff that used to be military stuff, and we've just gone way too far in the direction of militarization of the police. And it definitely is not making us more safe. It's making us less safe. And then also you need fair police union contracts because these unions always uh, bend over backwards to protect officers, even if they're accused of and guilty of the most egregious crimes pos- uh, possible. So this is, you know, and, and we can, it's possible if you wanted to get into, like, more specifics as to what entails with each one of these policy ideas, but broadly speaking, this is the solution. Like what we're talking about here, this is the solution. It's, it's to do every single one of these 10 recommendations, and without a doubt, that would drastically, drastically reduce instances of police brutality and, and uh, police violence and them crossing a line and them committing murder or manslaughter or whatever it may be, we're really talking about a total top-down reform um, if we were to go in this direction. And, you know, it's just, it's so sad that we, this stuff, we get this stuff all the time. There are so many videos that are like this. They happen all the time. We, at the very least, get like three or four per year of just an, an over-the-top, disgusting abuse of power uh, from police officers. And we shouldn't stand for it. We absolutely need to change it. Um, So will there be justice in this case? I don't know. Like I said, the Walter Scott case is the only one I can remember where justice was served. There's so many cases where, you know, the officer kind of gets off. So I hope that they're really approaching this in a methodical way. And there's a special prosecutor and they charge them properly and don't do, remember, don't fall for the trick, because this is the trick they use. Overcharge, and then they get off. Because they, they pick a case that's real, too hard to prove, and then they get off. So in this instance, I think they could probably get them on manslaughter if you have a, a special prosecutor. Because there's no doubt that the actions led to the guy's death. There's no doubt that that happened. Now, the police officers are going to argue, oh, I didn't know, I thought I was just, you know, I thought I was just restraining him in, in a reasonable way or whatever nonsense but that's what they'll argue and historically it's very very hard to convict police officers on anything but if you go with something like manslaughter you probably can get him on it if you have a special prosecutor if not it'll be a dog and pony show and he'll get off but listen let's all let's say it right now because we know this is true if if this police officer gets off you're going to have I think, an an L.A. riot-like situation in Minneapolis. Like I said, we've already seen, there's been peaceful protests going on across the country, but in Minneapolis, there were peaceful and not peaceful protests. So, you know, you're asking for a lot more of that if there's not justice served in this case. So we'll see what happens moving forward and um, what kind of actions are taken from here on out. But it really is time. We have to do the proper reforms. I think Campaign Zero is basically spot on with every single recommendation they have. And um, 
that's what a serious approach to police reform would be, and it would absolutely drastically reduce these kinds of horrendous cases that we see here. And remember, guys, it is possible to do that. This isn't written in the laws of nature that we have to have brutally violent police doing this to people. It's not. It's just not. Other countries have managed to, you know, drastically limit or eliminate police brutality. We can do it. It's just a matter of political will. Okay, next. A Trump campaign spokesperson went on the show Rising on Hill TV with Crystal and Sagar. And um, he tried to act like Trump would be going to the left of Biden on criminal justice issues. Now, I want you to pay close attention here because Crystal sort of just nonchalantly, without even trying, exposes this guy. Exposes him as just, it's a political ploy. So let's see what he has to say and then we'll discuss. Trump campaign is capitalizing on Joe Biden's Breakfast Club gap with a $1 million ad buy. The campaign created two ads with one directly centered on the gap itself. Another focusing on Biden's role in the 1994 crime bill. Indeed, that is part of the campaign's overall initiative to win over black voters, which also includes hosting shows like Black Voices for Trump. Mm-hmm. Director of Strategic Communications for the Trump campaign, Mark Lauder, joins us now via Skype to discuss this strategy. Great to see you, sir. Good to see you, Mark. Good to see you. All right, so tell us, what are the plans here? Well, this is just the beginning, and, and I think it's important for voters to, to fully understand and know Joe Biden's background, whether it is just the recent comments that he's made or his involvement in the crime bill, his previous uh, support and alignment with segregationists, the fact that he opposes charter schools, uh, things that mean a lot to, to the black community. And we'll do it with the black community. We're going to do it with the lab- with labor community. We'll do it with anyone that's going to listen because it's, this is going to be a choice. Can you just dig into the specifics there a little bit more? So obviously, uh, President signed First Step Act into law. Uh, you said you want to point out Joe Biden's record in terms of that 94 crime bill and other um, sort of law and order legislation that he was involved with. What is the president running on in terms of criminal justice reform, and what is the distinction that you want to draw with Joe Biden on those issues specifically? Well, I think first and foremost, the crime bill resulted in a large mass incarceration uh, of black uh, of black Americans. It also caused three strikes and, and uh, sentencing, those kinds of things, which you saw greatly be reduced and undone under the President's uh, First Step Act. You saw a, a great majority of the people who were released from prison were we're black, uh, we're black prisoners who are now free. We've seen so many of those stories over the years of people who are now reunited with their families, out becoming productive members of society, having jobs and, and things like that. So I think it's going to be a very powerful message. It's and something the, that the president the is very proud of, and we want to do more. Are, is it, what are the more steps? I mean, where does where he stand on marijuana legalization or descheduling, decriminalizing at this point? What are the additional steps beyond what was called the first step? What's the next step? 
Well, I think that's something that they're going to be working on throughout this campaign. We're going to continue to roll that out. I'm going to let the, uh, the White House and the President actually get into the details of what they're going to propose. It's not something we're prepared to do right now. We'll get there as the campaign uh, unfolds, but that's not something we're going to do today. But the, the reason why it was called the First Step Act was because it was the first step. And the President has said that we need to do more. We need to continue taking more steps. And I think... Uh, the president is someone that, that the black community can trust to do it because they've seen him do it once already. I love that, the way that unfolded. All right, so, like, what you're, – you're going to the left of Biden on criminal justice issues. Explain. Like, what are you going to do? What's, what's the plan? Well, see, what happened was we did the thing which was the first step, and then they're going to be the next step, and then what we do is we make sure that – Thank you, sir. (laughs) You're not saying anything. So in other words, you're like, we don't have a plan. We're not going to say anything. We're not going to focus on that. Um, But we are going to say that we're kind of going to the left of of Biden on this stuff. But you're you're not going to do anything. Listen, I'll make a prediction right now. Ain't going to be no next step act. Ain't going to be no second step step act. It's not going to happen. They're going to do the first step and then... We're donezo, donskis. They're not doing another one. So, and I think deep down, homeboy knows it. And so he's like trying to, well, I'm going to leave it to them when they want to do the thing and make sure that they'll announce it. But we're definitely going to the left of Biden. Look at the list they went through. Oh, Biden was involved in the crime bill. Biden aligned with segregationists. Biden opposes charter schools. Now, by the way, opposing charter schools is good. They escape all accountability. Like, we should have a situation where you fully fund and have beautiful operational public schools. That's what we should have. It's not like, oh, they're underfunded, so let's create all these totally new schools that are unaccountable now. So to bring that up is like, well, this is like a main thing. He put that right next to aligning with segregationists. I think aligning with segregationists is is bad. Um, But, like, the involvement in the crime bill. Agreed. That's terrible. And he's, you know, Crystal brings up, like, this is, yeah, Biden used to be, like, a law and order kind of Democrat. Trump, in 2016, ran on law and order. He spoke about it all the time. Like, we're going to bring back law. We're going to bring back law and order. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be tremendous. Like, that's one of the things he does as well. So a lot of these, a lot of these arguments are, they're in bad faith because if Trump, was in Congress at the time, if Trump was in the Senate at the time, he definitely would have voted for the crime bill. Republicans love the crime bill. So it's just, if you're not talking about, hey, we're going to pardon all the nonviolent drug offenders, or we're going to legalize drugs, we're going to take it off the, the list of schedule, you know, banned substances, and you have schedule one, schedule two, so on and so forth, we're going to take it off the list. It's gone. Then you're not going to do Dickie McGee's act. And don't pretend like you're going to pivot to the left of Biden. You know, Trump's, Trump's done with the, you know, I'll give him credit for the First Step Act. I'll give him credit for pardoning Alice Johnson. But they're not going to do anything else on it. And if you're not going to free every nonviolent drug offender and you're not going to legalize marijuana, or at the very least decriminalize it, then shut up because you're not pivoting to the left of anybody. Now, I'm not going to give Biden credit on any of that stuff either because he's not going to do Dickie McGee's act either. He's not going to legalize marijuana. 
He's not going to free all the nonviolent drug offenders. So I'm not going to praise him on that. But I'm also not going to give Trump the credence of saying, oh, he's going to the left of Biden on those issues. Because he's not. He's not going to the left of Biden. He's not going anywhere. But this, this shows you perfectly. You have Trump, the campaigner, and you have Trump as he governs. There's a, a version of Trump that's the campaigner, and there's, there's a version of Trump that, like, how he governs. And the governing aspect, by and large, on most issues, is very standard Republican politics. Now, the issue of criminal justice is a rare issue where he did move away from Republican orthodoxy. But I guarantee you now, moving forward, there is no going further left on this issue. He's done with it. That's it. So, you know, you'll have all the posturing in the world. Like Trump might also start posturing more on trade deals again. Well, guess what? 93,000 jobs were outsourced in his first year as president. So he can do all the posturing he wants. But ultimately, the way he governs is what matters. And you can give him credit for the First Step Act. You can give him credit for pardoning Alice Johnson and doing stuff like that. I always give credit where credit is due. But let's not pretend he's going to legalize marijuana. Neither one of them are going to legalize marijuana. Neither one of them are going to free all the nonviolent drug offenders. So really, he's just using this as a campaign issue. And I will say, it is smart politics in the sense that, yeah, it can help depress the left-wing base. Because it's just reminding the left-wing base, like, oh, this guy's not with you on those issues at all. So, again, I think they're full of it in acting like they're going to do anything else. They're not. They're not. But it's smart politics in that it's basically showing a tendency of Trump and his campaign to, like, hey, what if I were to pretend to be left of him on these issues? And that could be enough to depress turnout, because we know turnout is already depressed when it comes to young people, at least. Older voters are coming out in droves for Biden. But uh, it'll be an interesting dynamic to see what else he does this on moving forward. Rush Limbaugh defended Trump accusing Scarborough of murder. (laughs) He did it in a way that, um, you know, this is interesting to say the least. You get to Trump and his conspiracy theories. He does it in a really clever way. And this is where people don't get the subtlety of Trump because they don't think he has the ability to be subtle. Trump never says that he believes these conspiracy theories that he counts. He simply passed them on. Like, during the campaign of 2016, folks, I ran the gamut of emotions on this. When Trump said that he had seen a picture of Ted Cruz's dad standing next to to Lee Harvey Oswald, and I said, "What, what the hell is this? And I thought, he's going to have to walk this way. Ted Cruz's dad had something to do with the assassination of JFK. He never walked it back. But more importantly, he never asserted it himself. He simply said it was out there and that people ought to know. And with virtually every conspiracy, conspiracy, that, uh, conspiracy theory that Trump touts, he doesn't actually tout them himself. He spreads them. And he, 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 under the guise, people need to know about this. And it's, it, 
it, it's his way of jamming them up. It's his way of uh, teasing them. It's his way of getting these conspiracy theories out there. For example, as a as a as a way of illustrating, do you think, Mr. Sudley, do you think Trump cares whether Scarborough murdered anybody or not? No, of course he doesn't care. So why is he tweeting it? Well, because it's out there. He didn't make it up. It's long been out there that this death has something suspicious about it. So Trump is just throwing gasoline on a fire here. And he's having fun watching the flames. And he's having fun watching these holier-than-thou leftist journalists react like their moral sensibilities have been forever rocked and can never recover. little thought experiment for you. Rush said that, oh, he, Trump does, it's so clever what Trump does here. Imagine for a second a Democratic president accused a Fox News host of murder. <laughs> now, by the way, I'm not commenting one way or the other on the Joe Scarborough thing. I, you know, I, I, have, I didn't look into it in detail at all. You know, it, is it a weird circumstance that the woman died? Yes. Uh, but can I say definitively what happened? Absolutely not. And I'm not going to pretend to. Okay. So putting that aside, what if a Democratic president speculated that a Fox News host committed murder and brought it up repeatedly? <laughs> what would Rush say? Would Rush say the same thing that he's saying here? What's so clever? So clever. No, he would be like, this is an outrage. Actually, we don't even need to use a Fox News host. We could use Rush himself. As a perfect example, <laughs> what if a Democratic president speculated about you committing murder? Would you think it's so clever? See, the president doesn't say that I committed murder. He's just massively hinting at it and implying it. Smart. No, he would flip out. And this is, you know, evidence uh, I present to the jury number 9,376 about how Rush Limbaugh is the ultimate partisan hack. If it's for his team, he's going to spin it a million ways to make it seem like it's brilliant and it's wonderful. And this is what he's doing with the Trump thing. Um, and I like how embedded in the argument is, well, Trump doesn't really believe this. <laughs> Even Russia's admitting, like, well, obviously he doesn't believe it, but he's just, he's just saying it. He's just throwing it out there. And it does, he brought up the Ted Cruz thing. I have to say, this, this thing that Trump has been doing does remind me of the Ted Cruz's dad is, uh, you know, Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. <laughs> When you even say it, it's like you can't believe that a president accused somebody at the time he was a candidate, but that Trump accused somebody like your your dad obviously killed JFK. What? Um, but I mean, the bottom line is, listen, the whole Scarborough thing. Rush isn't necessarily wrong in that Trump. Trump doesn't know. Trump doesn't care what Scarborough did or didn't do. The bottom line is Joe Scarborough and Morning Joe, they've been coming at Trump for a while. Now, admittedly, the way they come at Trump is so annoying. The morning host on MSNBC, it's never substantive. It's never policy-based. It's always like, oh, my God, you're so uncivil, good sir. Yes. Like, that's the stuff they go after Trump for. But, you know, Trump somehow came across a clip of Morning Joe going after him, and he lost it. And so this is what Trump does. This is Trump 101. You come at me, I'm going to make your life a living hell. 
And so he's accusing the dude of committing murder now on a daily basis. Um, it works the other way, too, though. If you, if you say something positive about him or whatever, then he will go out of his way to treat you kindly and to praise you and to do it publicly. All the time he's doing these endorsements on his Twitter feed of this candidate and that candidate. And, you know, it's all because he saw them say something positive about him. So he does carrots and sticks all day long. But it just, you know, it shows you there's really no, there's no moral core there. It's all just, you know, rank, petty, childish, like grade school, reactionary stuff. You said bad thing about me, so now I'm going to start a rumor about you. Poop face. Like, that's what he's doing here. Um, but yeah, President of the United States, and this is what he does. This is what he does. <laughs> Imagine, minus like the charges of murder and whatnot, imagine a Democratic president who used carrots and sticks like this, where viciously destroyed anybody who got in the way. I'll tell you, in that situation, we might have Medicare for all and free college and a living wage, and we might actually end these wars. Okay, let's do one more. We'll do the Matt Iglesias story. I'm just throwing this together at the last minute, so bear with a little bit. So Matt Iglesias of Vox went on um, Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC, and he's going to try to make the case here that Biden is going to be the most progressive president in our in modern American history. Yeah. He's going to try to make that argument. I want to play a little snippet from it, and then we'll discuss. This pandemic has completely altered the presidential race, fair to say, from the coverage of the primary to when and how it actually ended. It's also exposed Donald Trump for his weaknesses, which were already quite apparent before, but even sharper relief now. And that's why uh, his polling average and the real clear politics average is at its worst position in a while. After this very long, hotly contested Democratic primary, there's now a tremendous amount of unity on the Democratic side, I think it's fair to say. Joe Biden's campaign is creating joint policy task forces with Bernie Sanders people. And as Matt Iglesias writes in Vox, though Biden did not run an aggressively ideological primary campaign, the substance of his proposed agenda, and everything from housing to education to minimum wage to climate change, is, quote, arguably the most progressive policy platform of any Democratic nominee in history. So I'm now the author of that piece, Matt Iglesias, senior correspondent at Vox. Now, Matt, I'd like to pitch you. Had, you had been one of the Vox people who had sort of made the case for Sanders early in the primary when different authors were doing that. Um, your, your piece here is sort of on the substance of just what's in the platform. Why do you say that it is possibly the most progressive agenda of a Democratic nominee that, that has happened so far? You know, Joe Biden is a, is a Democratic Party lifer. He's a very mainstream Democrat. He, he's been there for a lot of years. A lot of that sort of old history came up during the primary. Uh, but the evolution of the Democratic Party has been in a much more progressive direction over the past 5, 10, 20 years. And I think that's really reflected in this platform here. I mean, a small thing is Biden is for the $15 an hour minimum wage, right? We didn't talk about that a lot during the primary because the candidates all agreed. Uh, but as recently as 2016, that was a very divisive issue. That was something Hillary and Bernie Sanders argued about uh, an enormous amount. And now it's like you, you didn't hear it because the 
consensus. But it's the consensus that actually drives what might happen in, in policy terms. And so you look at uh, down the road, you know, he's talking about doubling Pell Grants, tripling housing assistance, um, big, big increases in federal funding for low-income schools, as well as this really actually quite ambitious climate policy agenda. And but it's the party as a whole is a much more sort of uniformly progressive force than it was just even a few years ago. I remember seeing an illustration once of where he was in the sort of ranking of Democratic senators. Uh, there's a DW nominated as a sort of political science score, and he's like always right in the middle of the Democratic caucus throughout his career, which is a kind of impressive achievement in its own way, right? Because it means you like understand exactly where the kind of middle consensus position is. But I want to I want to talk about the. Is that impressive, Chris? Being in the middle of the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., and that represents, like, what the consensus position is? I would contend being in the middle, the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., means you're a right-winger. That's what I would contend. Because the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C. is wildly out of lockstep with the American people. In some ways, Republican voters are more progressive than Democratic politicians in Washington, D.C. For example... 52% of Republican voters support Medicare for all. Over 80% of Democratic voters support Medicare for all. Biden doesn't support Medicare for all. So being in the middle of the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C. is no accomplishment, is no achievement, and it doesn't represent some sort of, you know, ideological position that is wildly popular and consensus building. No, because both parties in D.C. are hooked on corporate money, and are doing the bidding of those corporations. So if you find yourself smack dab in the middle of either party, chances are you're doing the bidding of multinational corporations and Wall Street and the military industrial complex, so on and so forth. So I, you know, I'm stunned that these guys are trying to make this case. Now, to the, to the broader point that Matt Iglesias was making, like, hey man, if you look at the platform, this party is more progressive than, you know, probably the most progressive in modern history. Probably the most progressive ever. Uh, if, if you look at the platform and what they're advocating for. To which I respond, we heard the same song and dance in 2016. And then what happened? Hillary went on to campaign and try to pivot to the right of Trump on many issues. Try to, you know, they think that it's so clever and it's so savvy to run to the right in a general. But that's just lying. When you say, I have these left-wing views in the primary, and then you say, I have these right-wing views in the general on the same issues, you're just lying. That's what you're doing. It's not savvy. It's not clever. It's not high-minded politics. It's not intellectual. It's now nobody knows what the hell you believe because you said you believed a left-wing thing, and now you say you believe a right-wing thing. So, uh, listen, I said this before, and I'll say it again. The platform is useless. The task forces are useless. That in no way, shape, or form will that show how Biden will govern. Now, you could say, well, Kyle, come on, man. You're speculating just as much as they're speculating. They're saying the platform matters. You're saying it doesn't matter. You're both speculating because nothing has happened yet. So, you know, how can you make that claim, Kyle? Well, the answer is very simple. He has a track record of over 40 years. We know exactly how how he governed. We know exactly how he... He voted. 
when, in Washington, D.C., and we know exactly how he'll govern based off that as president. So I've gone through it before. He supported NAFTA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Iraq War, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which gave us the crash in 2008 and 2009, certainly pushed us in that direction. The Patriot Act. He supported the Patriot Act. He supported the Wall Street bailout. He does big money fundraising all the time. He says he'd veto Medicare for all. He's against free college. He says he'll means test it. So really the only issue where he even bothers to sound progressive is the living wage. He says, I'm for a $15 minimum wage. But ready? I hope you're sitting for this one. I don't believe him. Why? Because he didn't do anything about it in the eight years he was vice president. You know, Obama didn't do anything about that. He didn't do anything about that. And he just recently came to it, and it, it, from pressure from Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders threw a softball down the center of the plate for him when they were having their sad little get-together where Bernie was endorsing him. And, but, and Bernie's like, Joe, do you support a living wage? Like, oh, yes, Bernie, I absolutely very much support that. That's the only time I've ever heard him bring it up, guys. That's it. So what, he brings it up a handful of times, in, and just recently, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, I totally believe him. He ain't going to do that as president. Now, if, if he does, if he wins, and if he does that, and I'm wrong, I'll come out here and say, I was wrong, guys. Biden did the $15 minimum wage. But what I'm going with is the preponderance of the evidence as to how he'll govern. Guys, he's going to be a neoliberal corporatist. They can do all the window dressing they want and all the placating of the left that they want with the platform and with the task forces. We know how he's going to govern. He's going to be a neoliberal corporatist. I wish I was wrong. I wish the platform mattered. I wish the task forces mattered. But they're not going to matter. Because you know what? On top of his record, political identity is in part based on the things he's been saying I'm not for. Okay? And that's a super important point. He's repeatedly talked about vetoing Medicare for all, which is probably the key litmus test for whether or not you're really on the left. He's repeatedly said, I'm not for free college. I'm going to do a means testing thing that over $125,000. He's not going to eliminate all student loan debt. I can go on and on, man. He's not going to do these things. So honestly, I, ha I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it. The fact that you just look at the platform as if it's like a one-to-one -one relationship, like, oh, th whatever it says there, that's what he's going to do. You're kind of a sucker. Or you're duping us on purpose. You know he's not going to do that but you still want people to vote for him, so you're pretending he's going to do the things in the platform or the things on the task forces. That's a sucker position, man. He's not going to do it. I hope he does. I wish he does act more on the left, but you have to go into these things eyes wide open. You can't be, delude yourself about this stuff. Own it. Own it. Like I said, I have a hell of a lot more respect. Like I respect an honest argument for Biden, and I've seen him. You know, I think like Michael Brooks recently... I saw him make some sort of harm reduction argument. I got zero bones to pick with Michael Brooks on that. I think there's a perfectly reasonable harm reduction argument to make. But the key point here is he's not lying to himself and he's not lying to you. He's making a pro-Biden bare bones harm reduction argument. I got no problem with that because it's honest. It's honest. It's not honest to believe to think he's going to do the platform or listen to the task forces. He ain't going to do that. So get rid of that shitty argument. Make a better argument for him. And then I won't have to do these segments mocking you and calling you a sucker. Okay?
because that's what Chris Hayes is. That's what Matt Iglesias is. Biden's not going to do that stuff. You know, I would love it if Biden won and I was wrong and he did all those things. I'd love it. But that ain't going to happen. And I hate to burst everybody's bubble. At least be honest when you make your pro-Biden arguments. That's the least I can ask for. All right, guys. We're done. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody stay safe. I'm out. Peace.